Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Where's the Love edition. I'm your host and journal editorial writer, Sarah O'Donnell. It is February 13th, 2014, and with me today in the newsroom studio to sift through the week in provincial politics are provincial affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. And journal columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. I was trying to decide how we should tackle this week's grab bag of topics, and I've decided it would be easiest to do in the order in which they appeared this week. And so that means we'll start with the latest batch of school announcements and whether it will be enough for Premier Alison Redford to be able to say promise kept come the next election. Then we'll talk about the federal budget and why Graham is so keenly interested in the topic of health transfers. For a couple different reasons, I'd also like to explore the question of whether it is fair game for politicians to criticize the work of independent officers of the legislature. And we'll conclude with good stuff from the gallery. Let's start with new schools, especially now that even more have been announced on this very day. The promise of 50 new schools and 70 modernizations was a huge piece of the Progressive Conservatives' campaign in the last election. In communities across Alberta, the need for new schools to accommodate growth as well as to replace old schools that are falling apart, is huge. Paula, can you start by giving us a quick summary of just how many schools the province announced this week? Well, it's a lot. Uh, They announced 10 new schools for Calgary, plus a major redevelopment where they're going to take a heritage building at Stampede Park and retrofit it as a performing arts academy. They announced uh, three new schools in Edmonton, as well as an addition to the Lillian Osborne High School. And just today, they announced two schools in Red Deer, one in Airdrie, one in Leduc, and one in Fort Saskatchewan. So that's a lot. Right, and there was one in Lethbridge the day before, Oh, yes, too. I'm sorry, and Lethbridge, and Lethbridge earlier this week. We can talk about the distribution of those schools in a minute, if you'd like. But first, I'd like to ask, is this enough for the Premier to be able to say next election, promise made, promise kept, Alberta built? Graham, what do you think? <laughs> That's what you're going to hear from the, the Premier, that she's keeping her promise. The opposition's going to say, look, um, a lot of promises, the details aren't there, the money isn't there yet. And also, um, what's going to happen is uh, you've got two more years to the election. They've got to start actually then actually building them, not just talking about them. So we'll see. I, I, I still think that the government's left itself open for criticism on these issues, especially when it comes to the issue of, you've mentioned this, you know, uh, gets, uh, sorry, Edmonton gets fewer schools than Calgary. And Paul has written a very good column about this. Um, this is the kind of thing that com- comes back to bite the government, even if she can say, look, we've got the 50 schools we've promised, and we'll see if that actually plays out the next two years in terms of them actually committing to actually building them uh, with, with actually the shovels in the ground. But 
if Edmonton sees itself being shortchanged on this, this is a major problem for her because people, um, you can argue that uh, Edmonton, the population isn't isn't growing as quickly as Calgary. You can argue that uh, we have older schools that are not uh, that are underutilized. People look at the actual numbers, and if they see that Edmonton is being shortchanged in their mind to Calgary, that's a major problem for the government MLAs in Edmonton. And the parallel I draw, the analogy is, uh, ten years ago when we had the boundaries redrawn for the um, ridings. Calgary got two more seats, um, and we, and, two or three more seats, and we got one less in Edmonton. <laughs> that caused a major problem in the 2004 election for Klein. People, you know, you could argue up and down regarding the population shifts. People in Edmonton were really upset that the government, uh, MLAs, uh, did not stand up and fight for Edmonton to, to keep that seat. We lost a seat. And same thing here, this is going to be a major problem, I think, for the Premier if we don't get, if we feel that we're being shortchanged in Edmonton. But that's, of course, as, as Graham says, always assuming that the schools get built, because this is the trick. These were very curious announcements. In previous school announcements, they've said these will be P3s, this will be when we put the things out for requests for, for proposal, for tender. In this case... There's no money attached to any of these school builds. The province refuses to say what the budget for any of these projects is. There's no announcement about whether these are going to be P3, private-public partnerships, or whether these are going to be more conventional builds. There's been no announcement of timelines. And so the Wild Rose was very quick off the mark with a press release saying, it's easy to announce schools, but are they actually going to be built? And the promise is in most of these schools that they'll be open for the 2016-2017 school year. That's a very quick turnaround to build a lot of infrastructure. Also, just to jump in, there's also the ongoing cost of running the schools. It's one thing to actually build a school. You've got to keep on, you know, have the staff there and keep it running. So there's actually an operating cost here as well. That right. We don't really know what's actually going to be, be the total figure for that as well. Paula, you actually were asking for reasons about the distribution of the schools. You were talking to people to try and find out why Calgary got 10, Edmonton got 3, plus the high school modernization. What was the answer you got? Well, there are some reasonable explanations for this. One, as Graham says, is that Calgary is growing faster and it has a larger population of school-aged children. The other is that Calgary doesn't have the kind of suburban relationship that we have here. And just today, after I wrote my Krabby column, they announced new schools for Fort Saskatchewan and Leduc. Calgary doesn't have quite that same relationship with its bedroom community. So, you know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, we got schools in the suburbs. And there are certainly arguments to be made that we got money for modernization in the last announcement uh, a week and a half ago, which included money that was given to both the public and the Catholic schools here if they wanted to at their discretion to knock down two or three older schools in a mature neighborhood and build a new school uh, instead. So there are some arguments there are also some political realities, and that is a very long-standing sense in this province among Edmontonians that we are constantly and consistently shortchanged by a government that has its power base in Calgary. And there's a sense, too. I mean, certainly people were saying to me on Twitter, it's interesting that a lot of these schools were announced in parts of Calgary where there's a very strong Wild Rose challenge. So you can be cynical and wonder if this isn't more of the same kind of Smothers Brothers, Mom always liked you best logic. There are, however, in fairness to the government, some arguments to be made uh, for why Calgary gets more schools. But even though Calgary has more kids, it doesn't have three times more kids. I have to ask, what do you make of the argument they've made regarding the budget and not revealing the cost that, well, we don't want to reveal the number, what what it will cost or what our budget is, because then when you're going out to tender 
that could, you know, make people bid higher than they would otherwise because they know that there's an envelope of, you know, $40 million there or however much it costs to renovate a school. Yeah, they make their argument. I just find, generally speaking, this is the government's trying to hide the cost of things. Either they hide mm. it through P3s or they just hide. They're trying to keep um, the lid on their deficit. They're trying to, I think, uh, to me, they're trying to hide a lot of costs uh, on what they're actually doing, which is why they're not giving us um, dollar figures and a lot of different things. So I think I'm more of a skeptic or a cynic when it comes to them not releasing information that they're trying to hide something. I guess we'll have to sift through the March 6th budget to see if that delivers Absolutely. any explanation. Speaking of budgets, the federal government released its uh, 2014 Economic Action Plan uh, this week. And uh, in a budget that was rather bland, the federal finance minister, Jim Flaherty, proudly talked about how boring it was. You found something to be excited about. Can you tell us <laughs> well, tell us why? The word excited is a bit, I think, maybe overblown. Um, I would never use hyperbole. I think it was uh, interesting because we got a billion dollars more a year in health transfers given to Alberta from the federal government. And this has been something the Alberta government has been fighting about for years. That they're saying that we're being shortchanged because the, the current formula, the old formula really, uh, was based on a province's wealth. And Alberta said, look, it's important that um, you do it by per capita. Our population is growing. Since we signed on to this agreement 10 years ago in 2004, our population has grown by, by a million people, basically, from 3 million, we're now at 4 million. They're saying, so the government's saying, look, we need a billion dollars more a year. And at first, even a few years ago, the federal government was, was pushing back, saying, no, your numbers are wrong, Alberta. And now the federal government's saying, um, we knew this was coming a few years ago, they, they said to be changing the formula. And what they did is, on Tuesday, we saw the federal budget finally saying to Alberta, yes, you deserve more. We're giving $1.8 billion more in health transfer payments across the country, and by far the most is going to Alberta, 38% increase to Alberta, $1 billion a year. $1 billion, 300000 Right. <laughs> so what does this mean? For this? Does this mean MRIs for all? Does this mean we can blow up the Misericordia so, well, Hospital and, we, and rebuild it? Uh, you could build a hospital for a billion dollars, couldn't you? Well, the thing is, the uh, Ooh, the government is, is now saying this is not a windfall. This is interesting politics here. Well, first of all, a little bit of history here. Alberta signed on to that, that formula in 2004 at the First Minister's Conference in Ottawa. And I was there. This is a conference that Ralph Klein stomped out of. <laughs> like he, he went to the to the um, casino. Rather than have a dinner with the Prime Minister, uh, Paul Martin at the time, he went, and he, he gambled one night. Next day he comes back to the conference and leaves saying this is a gong show and he, he walks out of it saying nothing's going to get done. So he leaves Gary Marr, health minister in place to actually have a, 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 a formula. And so they actually make, make a deal. And they agree to it. Klein's not there. Mar signs on his behalf, and it's a deal. It turns out to be a bad deal for Alberta. So you fast forward ten years later, we get this this new money is coming in. I talked to Fred Horn, Minister of Health, and he's saying, "Look, people shouldn't see this as a windfall. This isn't like an extra billion dollars we can just spend whatever we want." He's saying all it's doing is letting us catch up to where we should be. Now our funding is now catching up to our population. So in a sense, this is money we need just to to, to treat people. You know, the operating costs and things like this. Um, so he's saying this isn't a billion dollars you can just spend. Uh, overnight, he said, "This is just keeping us our head above water." But do you have to spend it on health? That's an interesting. <laughs> uh, uh, it, this I, this I, I didn't know this until Graham told me this this afternoon. This goes into general revenue. Ooh! And so the the, the minute you can the, build schools with it. Well, the thing is, this will go up to their bottom line. So it helps if they were having a deficit. This billion dollars helps them this year eliminate or be 
shrink that deficit. Of course, the problem is in Alberta, the minute you have more money, people start then demanding more money, saying, look, you got a billion dollars extra, your, your deficit isn't that high, I mean, you got a, a small surplus, start paying us more. And it's more difficult to argue a wage freeze for nurses, for example, if you get a billion dollars a year. And this is going to come in every year. And it's tied to the population. So we'll see more and more money. And this money goes into general revenue. And the premier says, okay, but we'll be spending it on, uh, on health care. Well, according to uh, Fred Horn, he says Treasury Board determines where this money will be spent. I have um, to say, Graham, Graham was very clear in his column today to make a point, which is that although Alison Redford was claiming credit for this, it actually goes back to Ed Stelmack, and it was under Premier Stelmack that they, the province really mounted a pretty fierce argument that we deserve this money. And it is an interesting question because transfer payments, you know, traditionally the idea was that you helped out have-not provinces. So, you know, at the breakfast table today, my husband said, well, this isn't fair. It isn't fair to the Maritimes. He's from New Brunswick. So I said to him, you know what? These aren't, these are not equalization payments. These are not equalization payments. These are payments that are supposed to fund public health care, which is a federal joint federal provincial right. responsibility. It's for abiding by the, res- the Canada Health, health Act, Act. Exactly. Yeah, right? So exactly. obeying the rules. Right. right. So, 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 you know, if, if you move here from Newfoundland or New Brunswick, you should have the same entitlement that you would have had in Newfoundland and New Brunswick. So a per capita fund, you could argue for health care makes sense. But it's not going down very well in other provinces because other provinces either had their funding frozen or got tiny, tiny increases. And when they see the richest province in the country get a, thir- a 38% bump in funding, you can bet that that has some noses out of joint. And another issue that's got noses out of joint, in other provinces, they have an aging population. Alberta we have a generally young population. People are moving here. Young people are actually moving. So our population is I think it's the youngest, I think, overall is the youngest population in the country. Which the relatively outside, outside the territories, I right. think. Um, so so as, as I'm thinking of the provinces. Yeah. So it's um, relatively young, healthy population. So if you have older populations in the Maritimes, for example, they're seeing the cost per capita increase because older people uh, need need more help. I guess, but don't we need more like maternity wards and uh, children's hospitals oh, yeah, and that it, sort of it, thing? It, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying we should give the billion dollars back. I'm just saying that, you know, it is incumbent upon all of us to realize that, yeah, it's not a windfall. I'm trying not to let my Alberta c- citizenship sway me too much <laughs> in this, but I, no, no, I, I feel I, like they're kind of whining. So especially <laughs> if we've been unfairly compensated for a decade but I guess oh, you could argue people are moving here from you know, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick well, or abso- whatever absolutely they are and, it, right. and it's, it's, so it's, you know the government sense, says they're not bringing their hospitals with them so the money is, is flowing in a sense through per capita grants money is then flowing here because they're moving here right so we've accused some of those other provinces of whining okay I have accused some yeah, of those other provinces Sarah. of whining there's been some other I guess, less complimentary language going on in a different series of debates uh, this week uh, related to the independent officers of the legislature. We were debating whether to talk about what Health Minister Fred Horn, his latest comment related to the stolen MediCenter laptop, said about uh, Privacy Commissioner Jill Clayton this week. And then today we saw the Auditor General have his report delivered and followed by some fierce criticism from NDP leader Brian Mason about the quality of his reporting. And that got me at least thinking, is it really fair or appropriate for these politicians to be going after independent officers of the legislature? Is, is that their job? Maybe we should divide it into two. Why don't we start with the question of the, the privacy commissioner and health minister Fred Horn? Is that a fair criticism? 
Well, I think it's perfectly reasonable for a politician, especially a backbencher and opposition politician, to criticize the work of an officer of the legislature. The trouble is that Fred Horn is a senior cabinet minister, and he has been acting as though he would like to blame Privacy Commissioner Jill Clayton for a mess made in his department. I mean, his comments this week sent me right round the bend. He, you know, he said to our colleague Keith Gerine, you know, he doesn't understand why he hasn't been updated. He's, you know, he's not getting a report. No one's telling him how the investigation is going. And I spoke to Mr. Horn yesterday and I pointed out to him that it's his department that's under investigation. She's an independent officer of the legislature. It would be grotesquely inappropriate for her to be giving him private briefings on how it's going. Not only that, she doesn't report to him. She doesn't report to Horn. She doesn't report to the government. She reports to the legislature as a whole and to the all-party committee that appointed her. There are certain lines of reporting. Sorry, why do you say that his department is under her scrutiny because it was a private clinic or the MediCenter company that had its laptop stolen? So how is how does well, how do those two things go the, together? The MediCenter is funded by the department, I mean indirectly but through the Department of Health. I mean they are you, they are a contractor. Their doctors are funded through Alberta Health Services and this legislation, the Health Information Act, which they are accused of breaching, is in Horn's portfolio. So to my mind, she's not investigating him or the conduct of his office, but she's absolutely investigating the conduct of actions that happened on his watch under the purview of his department. So we think that the health ministers overstepped in this regard. Now, I want to ask you, Graham, about Brian Mason. The NDP put out a press release about the Auditor General's report today that talks about seeing little value for money in the latest Auditor General report. And I, I've, I've heard, I wasn't there, but I've heard at the press conference, he was uh, not particularly complimentary about the work that the Auditor General's been doing, called it very bureaucratic and that sort of thing. So is that a fair criticism? Or, or again, we have an independent officer of the legislature. Should we be attacking him for the for the work that he's doing? Well, as Paula pointed out, it's a big difference between an opposition member criticizing <coughs> the Auditor General than actually having a, a government minister criticizing the Auditor General. This is someone who wants to be in government. They'd love to be government, right? Yeah, but the, the difference is that um, the Auditor General is actually investigating. He looks into the government. He's not investigating the NDP. He's investigating how the government spends money and how if it's actually doing things properly according to various government protocols. So he investigates the government, and they've got to basically just sit back and take it. Um, I think the opposition this has been a chronic problem. If you go back over the years, you'll see what's normally happened with Auditor Generals in particular. For example, Fred Dunn, when he first began doing the job, you saw a lot of criticism from, at the time, it was um, uh, the Liberal leader, uh, Kevin Taft, was very critical. In fact, so was Brian Mason. He was still leader back then. They were saying that uh, Dunn was pulling his punches, and they were right. Um, the Auditor Generals, when they start out, tend to be kid gloves, you know, treating the government very carefully. They're more lapdog, I've called them, than watchdog. What normally happens is over time they become more frustrated with the government because the government tends to ignore the Auditor General, and, and then he begins speaking out and speaking out. And we saw actually Fred Dunn ne near the end of his uh, uh, tenure as um, Auditor General. Uh, be very critical of the government, and then the government yeah. began getting critical of him. Yeah, he got much feistier and expanded his ambit much more to start to audit things that the government really didn't think he had any business auditing. And okay, so you and, think... And he, and he, sorry, and Fred Dunn actually was going... He, he made he did a special investigation into um, seniors' care, and that um, that was very... It was a very interesting report he did, and the government actually got angry with him um, for some of his comments. So uh, we'll see if uh, Merwin Sayre, uh, the new editor general, uh, relatively new actually becomes more feisty and more frustrated. 
I don't think he is. I think the government's kind of, they've got somebody there that they know is not going to rock the boat. Like we saw in the federal auditor general, Sheila Fraser was well known for actually finding things wrong with the federal government. Here, it tends to be a lot more uh, downplayed. And I think, going back to your original question, is it fair for the opposition to criticize uh, the reports? Absolutely. If the report is not getting to the answers, if people are asking questions that are not being answered, or if the things we're getting are very difficult to understand. Or or very bureaucratic. I mean, this report, one of the things he audits is the way that Olds College runs its bookstore inventory system. And I thought, Seriously, this is what the Auditor General is spending his time doing. I it, guess, it just, but if, it, if, it if the government, seems, if the government, yeah. on the other hand, was coming out and saying, "Oh, this report's a piece of garbage, and there's nothing in here that we should be talking about, and there's no value for money for this," wouldn't we all be saying, "Oh, that's outrageously offensive"? How could you say that about the Auditor General? But you know what? It is. It's it's the function of having lived this long in a one-party state. In a normal democracy, where you have a, the periodic turnover of government. Uh, you don't have this kind of inertia that's developed here. People know that when government cabinet ministers speak, that functionally they are able to get these people fired. I mean, in a normal democracy, you'd have an all-party committee that wouldn't be so partisan, and that that these independent officers would not be so much at the mercy of the whim of the government. Every independent officer of the legislature here remembers what happened to Lauren Gibson, the previous chief electoral officer, who pointed out some serious irregularities in provincial election conduct and was shortly thereafter shown the door. So I think one of the problems is that in a political ecosystem where we function like a one-party state, where this government has been in power so long and has such a huge majority in the legislature, every independent officer of the legislature knows that whatever the law technically says, they serve at the whim of the government. And so when the government is critical, it has a different tenor and a different import than when an opposition member is critical. Where is the love for the independent officer of the legislature? That's all. I guess we'll just we'll sign off with that before we move to our good stuff. I'm going to start because last week I promised to offer up a good stuff recommendation suggested by our listeners. I think I failed to do a good enough job promoting my desire for such suggestions, which means <laughs> that I didn't actually put it out on Twitter. So let me issue the challenge again to all our smart, well-read listeners. Please send me via our Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash the press gallery, your suggestions for good viewing, reading, or listening that has a political edge. And anyone who listens regularly knows that link can be very tangential, but we'd love to share them. So this week, I'll share something that comes to me courtesy of a longtime fan of the show, my dad, Yay. <laughs> who kindly gives me a gift subscription every year to Canada's History Magazine, formerly known as The Beaver. Uh, the O'Donnells are collectively going to recommend the cover story called Canada Without Medicare, and it imagines what might have happened to the concept of public health care in Canada if doctors had won the Saskatchewan doctor strike of 1962. And that took place right after the provincial government now famously introduced Canada's first publicly run universal insurance program. So the article's great because, as it notes at the very beginning, this is a magazine that normally deals just in fact, not speculation, and it focuses on history, so that makes sense. But I think it's a neat way to look at how this decision had such major implications for the country in relatively short order, and how it might have changed if the Saskatchewan government had caved to the doctors and the implications that that could have had on the Federal Royal Commission on Public Health. So again, that's called Canada Without Medicare, written by Christopher Moore. And thanks, Dad, for the suggestion and the subscription. 
Paula, did your dad recommend any good reads for you? Actually, this recommendation came to me from a grad school classmate of mine from my Stanford days who's now a journalist in India. And she brought to my notice a case that's very controversial in India this week. It involves an American uh, historian of religious studies, Wendy Doniger, who's a very respected academic from the University of Chicago. She wrote a book about the history of Hinduism, which offended uh, right-wing Hindu nationalists in India who raised such a stink and went to the courts and in a very controversial uh, court agreement, Penguin India, which is Wendy Doniger's publisher, has agreed not only to stop publishing the books, but to buy back all the copies in India and have them pulped. Wow. Yeah, it's an extraordinary thing for a publisher to back down this way. And remember, this isn't, a, this isn't an order from the Indian court. This is a, 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 a compromise agreement that they've come to. You know, for India, which prides itself on being a democracy with freedom of the press, this has been a very chilling incident. So what's that called again? Uh, there are a lot of really good articles online about it, but the one I'm going to point out, which was, I think, provided a lot of context for those of us who don't know about Indian politics, is from The Guardian, and it's by Vijay Prasad, and the uh, headline is, Wendy Doniger's book is a tribute to Hinduism's complexity, not an insult. Penguin's decision to destroy the Hindus and alternative history panders to an orthodox bourgeois view of this great religion, and that's from The Guardian. Wow, that's the longest headline ever. No, no, sorry, that's, oh, the, so that's the subhead. Okay. So again, by Vijay Prashad. Okay. Graham, what's your good stuff? Um, a book I'm reading I got at Christmas time, one of my many books I got. Um, I haven't finished it yet. It's called Five Days at Memorial. Life and Death in a Storm-Ravaged Hospital. I wanted to read that one. By Sherry Fink. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, author. This is about a uh, hospital in New Orleans during uh, Katrina. And uh, explaining, basically, it's really well done, amazingly well researched, just how these people got stranded in a hospital with these patients, basically these dying patients, and how the staff was coping. Um, it's, to me, it's a fascinating read. It's great journalism. Also, it just shows uh, this is a private hospital. So when they called their head office saying, um, help, they, the, the response from them was, National Guard will help you out. <laughs> so this is a private hospital relying on then the government to, to bail them out uh, of this problem. Plus, um, this is uh, to be also an issue with uh, climate change. I'm not saying Katrina was caused by climate change. All I'm saying is that when you have extreme weather, in certain areas. This is the kind of disaster you can expect in certain areas where things just absolutely fall apart and break down and society breaks down and people who are the most needy are the ones who end up dying. Okay, and that's called Six Days at Memorial. Five Days at Memorial, Life and Death in the Storm Ravaged Hospital by Sherry Fink. I love both those suggestions. Thank you. That's our show for this week. If you're new to the podcast, you can find old episodes on edmontonjournal.com slash opinion. Just go to the press gallery icon, which is the picture of the legislature. You can also find all the previous episodes on iTunes. Just search the press gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. And of course, we've got the Facebook page, facebook.com slash the press gallery. We hope you can check it out and like the page so that your friends can find us too. Thanks for listening. Thank you.